Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and today I'm going to bring you another script breakdown episode, this time looking at Stephen Knight's Locke. As you may have noticed, I'm in the process of re-evaluating how the podcast is going to function. The 21st Rewrite was always intended to be a podcast to bring you conversations about writing films, and I want that to continue. But there are various types of conversation, and the one I want to focus on right now is the conversation I'm having with you, the listener. So that's wherever you are, whether you're listening at home, at the gym, maybe even on an oil rig in the middle of the North Sea. At the end of the day, the questions I'm hoping to answer are why should we study this screenplay? What can we learn from it? Why does it succeed or fail? I received some really encouraging feedback on the last episode I did alone on AI, and so I want to keep this direct conversation going, this time again with Locke. In the future, I still want guests to come on the show to bring their expertise to you, and in that sense, I want them to be talking to you as much as me. And when screenwriters come on, it's to teach you directly about their knowledge and their experience and what they found from their career in writing. More importantly, podcasts don't have to be just a one-way medium. So I'm going to quickly share three ways that we can talk after the episode goes out and you've had time to listen to it. Firstly, there's a new platform that I'm personally very excited about called Syncify. Syncify is an app which allows you not only to listen to your podcasts, but also to connect directly to me and the other listeners. So when you listen to an episode, there's a comment section and that feed is linked to each episode specifically. I've been testing this out for a couple of weeks now, and I think it's the perfect solution to what I've been trying to achieve with the podcast, which is also to connect the listeners and to have a bit of a community going around what I'm working on and what I'm putting out in each episode. So if you listen to the episode on Syncify, you can put your questions or add your thoughts. Eventually, we're going to have essentially what is a message board directly for the topic of each episode. So please do give that a try if you ever have any thoughts directly related to one of the episodes. Alternatively, I'm also going to be working on building the 21st Rewrite community on Instagram. That's at 21st underscore rewrite at 21st underscore rewrite. And if you'd like to contact me outside of social media and you prefer not to use social media, there's always the contact form on the website, the21strewrite.com. So before we dive into Locke, I'd like to start with a question that I get asked in lots of different ways. So I don't have one person who I'm going to attribute this question to. It's just a common topic that comes up regularly, and I'm sure it's been on your mind in the past. That question is, how can you overcome writer's block? It's the eternal question, really, for writers. So I'm going to make a few suggestions here. Some of them might help you, some of them might not. But at the end of the day, when we're stuck with writer's block, I think many of us are willing to try anything. So let's start with tip number one, which is to focus on the quality of time spent and not metric analysis. So you may often hear when you're, when you're being encouraged to write, when you're learning, that one of the things that's really important to do is to build up routine, and that routine should have a metric attached to it, such as 500 words a day or 1,000 words a day. And the truth is that if you do do this consistently, you'll finish your project 
in a certain amount of time. There'll be X amount of days until you finish that first draft. And for some people, that structure can be really motivating. It can be highly motivating because it creates both the routine and confidence in finishing the long time goal. But if you are the type of person like me who sees these demands and maybe you have other you know other tasks in your life you have a job that is got a big checklist a big to-do list and then suddenly you're you're putting this extra thing either before you work after you work um, you're trying to fit it in every single day and hit these metrics you start to become a bit of a tyrant to yourself you start to be telling yourself what to do and also seeing yourself coming up short and failing to meet those targets so when that happens you start to lose confidence and that contributes to the writer's block so focusing on time spent as opposed to total output can help if you enjoy writing then spending time writing is something that you enjoy and instead of just seeing it as oh i didn't write those 500 words today which can be seeing things in a negative sense of oh i lacked oh i didn't quite do it if you start to see it as hey i got to spend an hour writing today you know that that's something i really value in my life it's, it's kind of reframing your mindset around it and so no matter how many words you write and what i found by taking this approach personally is that i often write a lot more than i was expecting because i say oh okay i'm going to take an hour to write and Hopefully by the end of this, I've written at least 500 words. And then I found that I've written a thousand words in that hour anyway. Specifically, that can be a really helpful thing as well, because once you get into the zone, once you're focusing, once you're in flow, suddenly things just seem to happen and you forget about the time. Maybe you go over the time, maybe you write more words than you were planning to, and that can help break the block. Okay, tip number two, and talking of routine, Routine should not be overlooked. The more regularly you write, the easier you will find it to keep writing. You've trained yourself, you're expecting, your, your mind and your body is kind of expecting to write at a certain time of the day each day. So if you're finding it hard to break a writer's block and you're struggling, see if building up a bit of a routine in which you do sit down and you commit to having an hour set aside to write each day or have however long it's going to be for you and you stick to that routine, you'll probably find that it starts to come more easily to you because sometimes you're not actually blocked. It's just that writing isn't a regular part of your routine. This can help you get into a mindset of not just I can write, but now it's time to write. Tip number three is to activate your problem solving mind. Create some restrictions. Instead of just being purely creative, try and turn it into a bit of a puzzle that can be solved. These can be as fun or as serious as they need to be, whatever works for you. One option is to have the character or characters trapped in a single location. That's going to be very relevant to our discussion today about Locke. Another option is to say, okay, for the next scene, I can only tell the story from another character's point of view. You might end up developing that character a bit more as a result. You might see your story from another angle. Again, the key here is to experiment, see what works for you, what doesn't work for you. And at the end of the day, if it gets you unstuck, then it's achieved its aim. And finally, tip number four 
is to try another genre. One of the most famous examples of this is Dr. Strangelove. Terry Southern and Stanley Kubrick initially started adapting the story from a thriller called Red Alert by Peter George. They just kept feeling that it didn't work until they started playing it for comedy, and they found that these seemingly serious moments actually worked really well as a satire. Even though that's quite an extreme example, and maybe you don't end up changing everything about the project, you still might enjoy adding a little humor here or there into a serious film to involve that side of your voice, or maybe your madcap comedy could benefit from a serious or a tender moment. At the end of the day, I feel a lot of writer's block comes from taking ourselves too seriously, and playing around and easing up a little bit can go a long way to freeing us from this trap. Those are just a few thoughts, but what works for you? Do you have any other tips for me or the other listeners? As I mentioned before, let me know on Syncify, Instagram, or the contact page on the website. Well, I've hoped you've enjoyed this extra little bonus segment, and we'll take a very quick break here, and then let's get into the main episode. Alright, so now this week, the discussion is going to be about Stephen Knight's film, Locke. Locke is an 85-minute film. It follows the main character, Ivan Locke, on a single car journey over the course of one evening and nothing else. This obviously means a huge responsibility for Tom Hardy, who is the only actor who appears on screen, and he has to dictate the tempo using his performance. But he's supported by a cast that includes Olivia Colman, who we can only hear on the other end of the phone line. The phone is Locke's only connection to the wider world as he drives. So rather than scenes per se, we have a succession of phone calls and one-to-one interactions with these different characters who are all in some way connected to Locke through his work or his personal life. Obviously, there's a reason why we are following the seemingly ordinary character on this particular night. Stephen Knight has said of this film, I wanted an ordinary man who has this ordinary tragedy, where it's something that anyone could do. But his life unravels, which for him is the end of the world. It's not going to make the papers, it's not a drug deal or an explosion, but it's what happens to people. The big idea I want to explore this week is, why is writing a single location screenplay a good idea for new writers? So I chose to talk to you about Locke because I believe it is a really powerful and instructional film that makes a strong case for this kind of minimalism. Limiting all of the events to this one location, which is Locke's car, and the only actor appearing on screen being Tom Hardy. This film holds the audience's attention all the way through. It's memorable and surprising yet it was also shot over the course of just seven nights, with the actors working from 9pm to 4am each day. So purely from a budget and logistics perspective, it's already a compelling case for something to try out early in a career. And not just that, but I also feel that this film can really help us explore what the term single location really means, and how to solve some misconceptions around that. The critic David Thompson wrote the following on Locke. He says, No film I've seen in recent years is more eloquent on where we are now and on how alone we feel. There is little left but to watch and listen. A great change has occurred. Once masses watched a movie together, 
but by now we have only our screens as company. And podcasts, I might add. But Thompson wrote these lines even before the pandemic, and they ring even truer today. And so I want you to think a little bit about what he's trying to say with those words when we explore the screenplay now. So let's start with a few definitions of what lock is and what it is not. Lock is sequential. It doesn't jump back and forth on a timeline. Uh, it doesn't cut away to action taking place at a different period of time, and it doesn't have flashbacks. But even though it's all sequential and every single sequence follows on from the previous one, it isn't a one-shot sequence or a one -er. So it does cut away, and there are moments where time is intended to pass. Locke is not a one-person play, but it very much does resemble a theatre piece, and it does thrive on its casting of Tom Hardy in the main role. The character of Ivan Locke is meant to be an ordinary working man, and Hardy uses a particular Welsh accent that may seem familiar to you, and I'll share a little bit more info on that right at the end, because I don't want to get waylaid right now talking about this, but it is something that I think is really interesting. And so right at the end, I'm going to tell you the origin of his Welsh accent. That's a little bonus I've got planned for you. So there's already a very minimalist approach to his character here. He's very rational, measured, problem-solving, and the reflection of the philosopher of reason, John Locke, is there in the name. I think we're all aware that there is some kind of division between the emotional realm and the logical realm, and this is where the screenplay goes to find the basis of its drama and its conflict. You might also be surprised to hear that the shooting script is a mere 72 pages long, and Stephen Knight wrote all of it with Tom Hardy in mind. They met in November, he wrote it over Christmas, and they filmed it in February. Already that sounds like a great case to see what we can learn from it. One of the remarkable things is that this film seems so packed, and even manages to find time for character moments, all written into these 72 pages. Remember, sometimes the shorter something is, the more weight is gained by the scenes that are included, and Locke has a really interesting approach to structure, as we're going to see. One of the key themes here is ordinariness. How can we be both an anonymous member of the crowd and also the protagonist of one's own story? Here are the introductory action lines from the opening page of the script. Through the window of a Land Rover, we see a construction site working at full capacity. Huge arc lights and the floodlights illuminate the scene, and men are hard at work. A group of men are in discussion in a pool of light. There is a conversation, then one of the men breaks off and takes a call on his cell phone. He is distant, not even the focal point of the shot. He puts his finger on his ear to hear the call more clearly. He is too far away for us to see his reactions or expression, but when he cuts the call, he walks directly towards the car and the other men turn to watch him go. As he gets closer, we see he wears a tie and heavy boots and a heavy coat. He wears a hard hat. He finds a key fob and hits it. The lights inside the car glow in response. The man gets into the driver's seat. He is in his thirties, a face made of stone and unused to expressions of emotion. This is Ivan Locke. He sits in the driver's seat for a few moments. He takes a breath, and we might guess, or we might not, that he has just had some important news. Is he scared? Angry? 
He takes out his cell phone and looks, deciding whether or not to make a call. He checks his watch. He decides there isn't time for the call. He puts the phone away quickly and fires the engine. He shifts gear and reverses. We stay with him, and we'll stay with him intensely for the rest of the story. The action lines even go on a little bit longer after this, but as you can see, this time taken to set the scene really feels exciting from a reader's point of view. There's something kind of eternal or mystical about the screenplay that opens with a character gradually coming into view. Take Paris, Texas, for example. The screenplay quite soon becomes more dependent on dialogue, which makes a lot of sense, but it also retains some practicality in terms of describing both a literary vision for a film and serving as a document that outlines how to make that film. So on the following page, page three, it says, his first decision is to make a phone call on his hands-free car phone. This is an important component of the story, so we should take some time establishing the mechanism. He has a long list of speed dial numbers, identified by names or locations. So, as you can see with that action line, it's talking directly to the filmmaker, not to the reader, in that sense. From this point forward, it's going to be either Ivan on the phone, or Ivan alone with his thoughts. And that is precisely what the audience is going to engage with the story using. Because the audience is just stuck in this car, watching his face, watching Ivan's face, and hearing what he says and what is said to him. So from this point forward, the story, the screenplay, doesn't need as much explanation. It doesn't need so much background and description. It's driven entirely by that dialogue. And I think this is a way to tell if such a story is holding up, is if this dialogue is gripping, if it's engaging, if you're getting lost in reading it and, and compelled by the scenes that you're seeing played out because there really isn't very much else to it. You know, the, the rest of the film is very, very limited in what it can do, because it's choosing to use a very simple, but as as I've referred to this film previously, as minimalist, you know, there, there is a beauty in what it's doing. It's using this nighttime cinematography, this kind of seemingly endless motorway, the repetition of the motorway, all of this stuff, and just the singular face of the one actor over and over again. And of course, what we get drawn into is story. Story is the mechanism that makes film work. It's not just what you see. It's not just visual. And here I'd like you to think back to the suggestion I made about restrictions and writer's block earlier. Once you state an intention, once you create the rules to a world, stick with it, and your audience will appreciate you for it. That doesn't mean that the rules can't be broken. It's just that if they are, there needs to be a really good reason for that. Locke finds that it doesn't have to break its own rules, which is quite nice. The whole idea becomes that simplicity itself allows us to focus on what's most pertinent. At the end of the day, this is a fascinating character study that finds ways to shine a light on many different aspects of Locke's character. It comes back to a really insightful, dramatic idea that is so often overlooked, namely that... Your character, the way you present yourself and how you talk, changes depending on who you are talking to. Locke understands this. The screenplay understands this. Locke lets us see Ivan in all kinds of roles, as an employee, as a boss, as a father, as a stranger navigating a mistake that he's made, 
and as a repentant husband, and perhaps even more importantly, as a man alone with the demons of his past. We are not just individuals, you see, but social beings, affected by these social ties on a fundamental level. Our character can come out in all kinds of interactions, and it will change and it will mold to fit a situation. So what the screenplay is doing is it's giving us all these different emphases on the character, letting us see him interact with different people so that we can understand him as a whole. This wouldn't be possible if the entire film was driven entirely by him calling just his wife or just Bethan and trying to talk his way through and and then meeting more and more obstacles, physical obstacles on the road, something like that. Instead, we get to see the entirety of his personhood. And what I mean when I say that this personhood is built out of these social ties, I think we can see really clearly, even in the case of a person who has ceased to be a physical presence in his life, which is his father, and that ghost has a profound influence on who Locke is choosing to be in this moment. He's reacting in opposition to, in response to what he felt his father had done to him. In that view, Locke found a way to bring its wider world into this space, onto the stage, in a theatrical sense. And this will contribute to the argument I'm going to make about what this film teaches us about single location storytelling. I'm not just vouching for the single location to be a great way for a new writer to try telling a story. I'm also arguing that we should understand what single location actually can be in order to work as effectively as it does here in Locke. On the last episode, I talked about acts. I argued in favor of continuing to use them as part of story analysis, and I offered a definition of what they are, namely that they occupy the position between story and scene, just as scene lies somewhere between act and beat. So Locke's first act takes the following form. There's the introductory action lines, the establishing shots, then Locke tries to make two phone calls. He tries to call his boss, Gareth, and he tries to call Bethan, which ends up going to voicemail. Then he receives a call from Donal, who is a man who works for him at the construction site. Then Bethan calls, and this is the big reveal that ex- you know outlines the entire premise of the film, that Bethan, who is not his wife, a woman he knew very briefly nine months ago, is about to have his baby. Then he finally gets the call from his boss, Gareth. Then he faces the ghost of his father, which is him talking to himself, essentially talking to a reflection in the mirror of his car. And this is when his inner demon really comes out. This is when he really starts to outline his perspective, kind of imagining a conversation he's having with his father. Donald calls him again. Then he tries to call home, trying to get in contact with his wife. And his son, Eddie, who's a teenager, answers the phone. Bethan calls again, and then Gareth calls him to let him know he's fired. Because what Ivan has done is he's abandoned the building site on the night before the big, big event, which is laying down the foundations, bringing in all the concrete for this huge 55-story building that's about to be constructed there. And so 
it's obviously completely unforgivable from the company's point of view, but he's made his decision. And what we find is by the end of the first act here, we know the central dramatic question, which is, will Locke continue on to his destination, the hospital in London where Bethan, this woman he barely knows who he had a one-night stand with nine months prior, and is now giving birth, or will he turn back and return to his job and his family? So he has set out because his gut feeling is that he should be there for the birth of his son, this innocent new life coming into the world who otherwise would be coming in without a father. Each of the phone calls in succession is going to challenge him and add further complications, make it clear just how much this decision is going to cost him. This is where the screenplay gets into ethics, right and wrong, and how the right decision might still cause pain to others. Locke seems to have faith from his mindset as both a person and an engineer that every problem can be fixed. The story sets out to challenge that view, but honors its character by allowing him to remain constant. As I previously mentioned, an aspect of character is how one acts depending on the other person they're interacting with. But another fundamental of character is the decisions that a character takes when they're under pressure. That really reveals kind of the older meaning of character, let's say, the sense of you are what you decide to do in the critical moment. That tells you something about your character. That's kind of thinking about it what would history say about you? And as Stephen Knight mentioned, you know, this isn't a drama about something that's the kind of thing that's going to make the papers, the kind of thing that's going to be newsworthy, but it's still the individual drama. It's the personal drama. And when all the world's at stage, you know, this is a significant moment for Ivan Locke. This moment is his crunch point. The first act sets out the pros and the cons of each decision, the three key areas of his life, his family, his work, and how his father shaped who he is now in response. All three of these dimensions are tied together by responsibility and duty. Deciding to take responsibility for a mistake and how it can be incredibly costly and damaging is also shown to not be inevitable because Locke is aware of that on a personal level as well, that his own father avoided him all his childhood and didn't even get the courage to meet him until he was an adult. There's a real world there. And it's the fact that Locke is alone in that car that allows us to explore that wound. Stephen Knight has talked about this as well. He said, essentially, that there's an honesty to being alone when driving in a car because the mind is free to wander and the body is doing the driving, and people talk to themselves. It doesn't matter if someone sees you because, you know, in 10 seconds you've driven away and they'll never see you again. So what he's suggesting is that there's kind of this space, and maybe next time you're out on the motorway, take a look at the passengers and see, you know, there's there's kind of an intimacy to these moments that people do feel kind of free in a certain way of feeling themselves. And so... This is one of the ways that this feels believable, let's say, or at least it's the logic behind why the screenwriter, Stephen Knight, thought that this would be believable is because he felt that this fitted. And so I think the audience 
suspends their disbelief and they understand that this is meant to be something that he would never do if anyone else was around. It's only something he does completely alone. Again, act breaks are invisible in modern film in many ways, and they're often open to interpretation. But I would say that, in my view, Act 1 ends here with what I call a first defeat. Um, It's a moment where it starts to be clear that turning back now might not save everything. It's a very key structural moment in a screenplay. A first victory, for example, is something you might see in a sports film as, hey, we just got this team together and we've had this victory. We've really got this. We might be able to go all the way. And the first defeat, on the other hand, is the same team saying, hey, we suck. This is going to be much harder than we thought. We've still got a mountain to climb. And at this point in Locke, the audience has just seen what's at stake, figured out why Locke is doing what he's doing, and we see he still has his mountain to climb. What's the elephant in the room? Or, I mean, car. That's what the next sequence, Act 2 we could call it, starts to tell us. That's the call from his wife, Katrina. Remember, we're entering that sequence knowing that he's just been fired from his job, so he's already got something very significant in that sense to tell his wife, but that never becomes a topic of their conversation because their conversation is going to revolve around him telling her the more important thing, the thing that is going to ultimately mean the end for their marriage, though, of course, when he tells her that at the time he's hoping for some compassion, for some understanding, for her to listen to him. And this must be a really, really powerful moment. And I can just imagine that the actors tried many different ways around the scene um, because obviously it's it's got to seem authentic. It's got to seem genuine that these two people who feel like they've known each other for so long realize that they've been living with a secret and that the revelation of this secret could change everything for them. So what Act 2, the structure it takes, is that Katrina calls him, having been told by their son to call. After finding out about Bethan and the child, she hangs up. Then, of course, what you get, these really smart interruptions. So the screenplay, at different points in time, it doesn't let you have a break. It certainly doesn't let Ivan Locke have a break. This really, really powerful moment has just happened. And instead of, you know, lingering with Ivan, taking too much time there, what you do is have Donald call immediately. And then there's the work stuff going on. And this is uh, Ivan. He wants to convince Donald to go ahead and essentially let Ivan oversee the construction the next day through Donald. And they kind of hatch a plot And this is kind of the side story of the B story to the whole film is this plot that essentially Donu is going to oversee everything that night and he's going to do what Ivan tells him to do because they do depend on Ivan, but Ivan's also just been fired. So following that, he tries to call home and talk to Katrina. Then he talks to his ghost, again, the ghost of his father. The hospital calls him, Donu calls and there's complications, and 
in the B story, these complications grow and grow. For, so this this call is that the folder is missing that contains all the details for the, the events of the next day. Katrina calls again. This is where she tells him this is the difference between never and once is the whole world. And this is this major, major moment because he's it's also bringing into question how well does he know Bethan? Does he even trust her? She starts to suggest that you know, the child might not even be his. But he has a sense that it is his child. He knows that. He's quite sure of it. And I feel that that is the midpoint in the film. I think that this kind of comes in the middle of what we could call the second act. And I think it's really the point of absolute no return because Katrina has set out her view, which is, that there is no coming back from this, essentially, that the difference between never and once is the whole world. And he it's also called into question whether he's doing the right thing. I think up until that point, there's less doubt. There's still a chance that certain things can be resolved um, in a different way. And the second half of the film kind of looks at the fallout. By this point, we're on about page 38 of what I said is a 72-page screenplay. At this point, basically, we've understood what really is going to happen with both his job, at least the fact that he is fired, and then, of course, what is likely to happen with his family life. So after the midpoint, you get the second part of Act 2, which, again, is a succession of calls. The most of the screenplay is this way, of course, and I hope it doesn't sound too boring to describe them in this way in the order that they take place, because I think one of the things I want to point out as we're doing this is just to identify these patterns, that there's quite a clever balance between some sort of family life event and then the work event, and the family event and the work event, and then these are interspaced every now and again with him confronting the ghost of his father. And this is where rage comes out, but it's also where he illustrates precisely how he thinks about the world, what he thinks is right and wrong. These are the kind of conversations he has with his dad. And even though it comes out with a lot of anger, it's that he feels that he has learned from this experience of this difficult relationship with his own father what he thinks fatherhood should be and what it should mean and its importance in the life of children. And so seeing these children, he's got these two sons at home. He's got Eddie and Sean, and they are very, very important to him as well. But his third son is also going to be important to him. And through these conversations with his ghost, we perhaps understand the darkness, kind of the shadow side, the, the deepest part of him, also the part that is maybe not resolved, because, again, this is intended to be a very ordinary character, a character who might have gone through life trying to do his best, trying to be, we see, diligent, responsible, a loving family man, all of these things, but there is a wound there that has never, never been healed, and that, I think, is quite universal, that everyone has something that kind of haunts them, something that has hurt them in the past. So, again, like I said, this structural part of it, it's just to see these patterns now. So let's just take a quick look at the second part of Act 2. 
Bethan calls again, and there's a complication with the birth that the umbilical cord is wrapped around the baby. They're going to perform a surgery. It's all going to be okay, but she says a very beautiful line here, which is that the umbilical cord is like a noose, a lifeline, and a noose. And I think if any one line sums up the predicament Locke finds himself in, in this entire screenplay, I think it's that line. You know, the thing that is driving him, the thing that is his goal, his objective, and is going to lead to something, is also the thing that's killing him and destroying everything around him as his world falls apart. So Bethan's call is followed by a talk with the ghost, which is interrupted when Eddie calls. Then he has to call the police for work. Then he has to call Donald. Then he has to call his son, Sean. And a lot of this is just work stuff and developing that B story. A little bit of a break from the family drama, but that does come up again a bit when he's calling Sean. Then the hospital calls him to talk about the pregnancy complication. Then Katrina calls him, and she really lets loose in this, and she says, you know, can you hear yourself? And Locke responds with one of these brilliant lines from the screenplay, which is, I want to know I'm not driving in one direction, that I will be driving back when the sun comes up. I really love that line. Um, really emphasizes what is going on, and this feeling that... Yes, this is one road he's going down that night, but it's not something he wants to do permanently. But of course, Katrina does hang up on him, and that's when he says he still wants the number so that he can close the road. So it's actually his his character flaw here, the thing that really does drive that final wedge between him and his wife isn't just the fact that he had cheated. It isn't just the fact that he's fathered this other child. It's the fact that he's still choosing work, even in these moments of crisis. That act starts to get tied up by returning to the work story. Donal calls and gives him the number that he's been looking for. He calls the councilman to get the road closed. Uh, he has a good yell at the, the ghost of his father one more time. And then Donald calls with a final emergency. And so you get this moment at the end of Act 2 where Stephen Knight refers to Ivan being both kind of caught between mad laughter and tears of near despair. And I think that is precisely why this is what we would consider the, kind, the end of Act 2, is because it's left on that note where... It's definitely not resolved, and it still feels like the worst is yet to come. But as we saw with this kind of sequence, we tend to see in screenplays that there's a concept called fun and games. That's what one term that's been used for it, which is just kind of that there's a little bit more filler in the second act. In some ways, that is the case in Locke, in the sense that the second act does... It features its family drama moments at these kind of key points, right at the beginning of the act, right at the midpoint, and towards the end of the act, with Katrina really making that that decision to hang up on him when he says he still wants to close the road, despite everything else that's going on. 
and then it fills most of the other action with what's going on with work. And so that's kind of your fun and games in that. Stephen Knight is also playing around here with the character that he's created and exploring how he does solve a crisis at work. And that is a parallel that we can use to measure the family drama all the way through. So let's take a final look at Act 3 now. This is when he receives a call from Bethan, has a good yell at the ghost of his father. Sean calls and says, you know, mum says you're not coming home ever again. Donald calls. Then there's the ghost. This is the moment that Locke tells him, I now know why you ran away, which is a really good line. That really emphasizes that he's learning something in this night. You know, everything, even the values he's built over the course of his life come into question at this critical moment in the, this night. And then you get the, fi- the call from Dono, which is this moment of elation. And then you have a call from Katrina, just really, really hitting that all is lost moment directly after the moment of elation, because Dono had resolved everything that needed to be fixed in order to have everything go ahead with the construction. And then, of course, there's the reminder, the family thing with Katrina. Gareth calls. That's where this is great line about two hours ago. I had a job, a wife and a home. Now I have nothing. Of course, Gareth is basically saying, well, you screwed your own life up. Eddie calls, leaves a voicemail. All that's been lost is kind of recalled at this moment, you know, just because he should be there. There's always a sense that in there's this parallel reality that he should be in that night. He should be at home with his wife and his sons watching football, having some barbecue. And that isn't where he ends up. And life has taken him on this completely different journey. Then finally you get that call from Bethan and her telling him it's a boy and the, the, the son has been born. And then the film manages to wrap up and at the end there's this beautiful moment and I think I referred to this in the episode of the podcast that I did on the sense of an ending that the ending of Locke is quite similar to that film in that there's a moment where Locke disappears into the night essentially that the camera pulls out and the car carries on in the motorway and we lose track of it And we see all these other cars that just seem exactly the same going along the same stretch of road. And there's a suggestion that all these ordinary people could have extraordinary stories to tell if only there was a way of prying into their lives and seeing into their lives. And, you know, I think that's one of the most powerful little additions that goes on in this screenplay is this just this respect for the common person, this respect for life for the magnitude of life the difficulties the striving that goes on it's a very very human story i think and of course the screenplay itself also adds this note which is that was the birth of a new life worth the destruction of his own that's a a question that's actually included in the action lines towards the end of the screenplay i hope you've enjoyed what i've told you so far about this screenplay, I highly recommend you read it yourself. 
take the time to enjoy it because it's just as good a read as the film is to watch. And you can really see how it's constructed and see how this structure is going on here. It's flipping between these stories, you know, the story of his family life, the story of his work, the story of who he is, who he wants to be. And it's also suggesting what is the cost there? Is it worth that cost? And I did find a quote from Stephen Knight in an interview, which I think is really worth bringing to you here as well, which is something he said. He said, I wanted him when he arrives at the other end with nothing to realize that the one thing he'd done that was a mistake, the irrational thing, had led to that moment that he hears a baby crying. That mistake has made something better than even the building he is so in love with, which is made of concrete and reason. I think he arrives changed, realizing out of the stupidity, chaos, and daft things that human beings do comes the next generation. So that wasn't included in the screenplay, but I think that was quite clearly the intention, and I do think it comes across on screen as well, that there is a a genuine beauty to that, and that values um, really do start to come down on the other side of the human experience. As I mentioned before, that, you know, Locke is this very rational person, and his dreams, you know, he sees the value of concrete things, not just concrete itself, but solid things, leaving a permanent mark on the world is so important to him. But the emotional side, the human side is so important to him as well. That's something he learns on that night. So I said I wanted to wrap up this by talking about single location and what we learn from this. So my theory here is that single location is a term that doesn't really mean single location. It's a timeline following a decision. That's what single location really means to me when it's done well. So one of the aspects that really needs to be understood about Locke, the part that I think is most instructional to us as writers, is that it's not really single location in the narrow sense. It doesn't take place in a hotel room or in a phone booth, or in a box buried underground. Uh, Firstly, it lets other characters in and out, even if it's only by voice. But the car itself is moving. The car itself is a location when combined with the motorway. It's a waypoint. Every mile, every junction it passes, is a representation on the map of how far Locke has continued with his decision. So the film starts with him making a decision and turning off and joining the motorway. And from that point on, there's a measure of the further you go, the harder it is to turn back. This is both a physical and an emotional distance to cross with his job, his family, and with Bethan and the baby. That doesn't mean that the location has to move in a single location screenplay, of course. So take High Noon, for example, the Fred Zinnemann Western of 1952, which is set in a single town, which is bracing for a showdown. The town itself doesn't move, but the clock ticks and ticks and ticks down the minutes 
until midday, the titular high noon that everyone is waiting for when the conflict between Gary Cooper's sheriff and the outlaw seeking retribution is going to occur. The film takes care to always show clocks at the key moments to emphasize the coming showdown. As the final minutes arrive, those decisions are becoming more and more irreversible. Time is running out to make another decision. It's easy for us to forget that we live in four dimensions, with time being the fourth dimension outside of the three dimensions of the physical world in which we operate. When the location itself is limited, a writer can give more prominence to time. Remember, time only travels in one direction, unless, of course, you're Christopher Nolan, um, and that means the permanence of decisions is critical to not only story, but it's the very essence of being human. Every story has a beginning, a middle, an end in that order. The minimalism of Locke allows us to reassess those key components in a new light. So if you do go ahead and you want to write a single location screenplay, remember the importance of time. Things are never static. The location might be limited. The movement in those three dimensions might be restricted. But time is always ceaselessly plodding forward. And the further it goes, the more oppressive it can become. And I know it's always almost a cliche for screenwriting to say, add more and more obstacles in your character's path. But just remember that there is always a simple way of getting around that as well, because as time ticks away, as time starts to run out, or the further you get along that road you've started to take, the things become more and more limited and therefore can have bigger and bigger consequences. So that's my theory about single location. And that's my breakdown of the screenplay to lock. I'm going to do a quick follow-up now, just after this break. See you in a second. All right, well, thanks again for joining this episode. My follow-up here is that I feel that there's a difference between single location and one shot, and that's something I want to explore next. So I think what I'll try to do soon is a breakdown of the theoretically one-shot film 1917 by Sam Mendes. We'll take a little look into what that is and what that does in terms of writing a story. Um, I did promise you that I would explain Tom Hardy's Welsh accent. So in preparation for the role, Tom Hardy listened to a poem read by the great actor Richard Burton. And I'm going to play you a bit of that and let's see if you can hear how this poem influenced Tom Hardy's interpretation of Ivan Locke. By sow there seni, dovey dee, edu, edin, aled, all, taff and towy, broad and free, clovenant with its waterfall, clyer when clear thy delice thou, eli, gwili, ogur, neith, small is our river, dewy lord, a baby on a rushy bed. By Carreg Kennen, king of time, our heron head is only a bit of stone with seaweed spread where gulls come to be lonely. 
A tiny dingle is milkwood by golden grove neath Gronger, but let me choose, and oh, I should love all my life and longer to stroll among our trees and stray in Guzgog Lane on Donkey Down, and hear the dewy sing all day, and never, never leave the town. So that's Richard Burton reading under The Milkwood by Dylan Thomas. All right, and finally, what should you do next? Well, aside from enjoying more episodes of the 21st Rewrite, maybe there's some stuff you want to incorporate in your own writing, having thought about the screenplay from this point of view. Uh, Here's my writing assignment for you this week. Try out a single location yourself. Every time you think your scene should end, don't let it. Bring the plot twist to the location where your character is, or even better, have the character make a decision that keeps them in that location. Remember that Locke is a very decision-based film, and so we're actually seeing the outcome of his decisions, and that is what makes it really compelling on screen, not just the fact he's trapped in a car. You know, there's a big difference between speed and lock in that sense. Uh, See how far you get and see what happens when you try it. You might get an idea that you otherwise wouldn't have had. Do let me know what you thought of this episode of the podcast. As I mentioned, download the Syncify app and we can talk on the conversation features on there. Um, I'm always available on the podcast Instagram account. And you can contact me via the official website as well. Until next time, best of luck with your writing. Thanks again.